Well, let me encourage you, please, to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Just so that you know, beloved, um, we're going through Acts now, but as we enter into uh, the month of December, our focus uh, really will become much, uh, much upon the the incarnation. So we will probably take a, a bit of a break out of Acts and focus on some of the Gospels and some of the message will particularly be catered towards um, towards the incarnation. But we're in Acts this morning and uh, we're in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. And I'd like to just read from verse 1 to verse 18. Verse 1 to verse 18. 18. And this is Paul's third missionary journey, third missionary journey that he begins. I'm reading from the New King James. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation they were tent makers, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Verse 7. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, who was worshipped who, who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. Verse 9. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Gallio was pro-council of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God, contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. Verse 18, So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at St. Korea, for he had taken a vow. May God be pleased to bless the reading of Holy Scripture. Please pray with me, Father. Our Father, we humble ourselves before you. 
And we thank you that we can be still before you and know that you are God. We pray for the help of your Spirit to understand these things that we are reading. We pray that we would see the Gospel, that we would see Christ. We pray that our faith would be instructed and that you would be glorified in our response. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, let's consider this passage now. Before we get into the text, I just want to, because this is Paul's third missionary journey, I'm just going to lay a bit of a foundation, a little bit of a background for you so that we understand what's going on uh, in the text that we're looking at and we'll be going through chapter 18. Now, when we think of where Paul was, he was in Athens. And Athens was the intellectual center of the ancient world. That was the place where all of the philosophers were. That was the place, the, the so-called birthplace of democracy. It was a place of three of the most famous universities. Although it was in decline, it was still seen as the intellectual center of the world, as it were. Now, Paul leaves there, and he goes to Corinth. And it's very interesting, because Corinth was known as the great commercial center. It had a world-famous emporium. It was situ situated close to the Isthmus, which joined mainland Greece to the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Corinth was well known for its trade route. It commanded the trade routes in all directions. It was a very pivotal place. And uh, it was a place where uh, it drew a great deal of different kinds of people. It was a cosmopolitan place. And Corinth boasted two ports. It was a well-known place. It had two ports on, on either side, uh, to the east and uh, to, the, to the west. So it was, a, it was a city of seafarers, of maritime merchants. And uh, it was a place... If Apollos was worshipped in Athens, uh, Corinth was known for the worship of Poseidon, the Greek god of the sea, whom the Romans called Neptune. He was the, the god, the deity worshipped him. Now think about Paul's movements. You have to step back and you have to look at the broader picture. Because sometimes we can get caught in the woods, right? And you have to understand how Paul is thinking. Paul is a missionary and he's a strategist and he's thinking about the expansion of the kingdom of God. And he's thinking to himself, this is a, a, a massive trade port and if, if all of these this trade radiates from Corinth, then how much more so can't the gospel radiate from Corinth? And so he saw this as a... A very strategic place. The next place Paul went to was a place called Ephesus. And uh, it was also well known for its commerce. In fact, uh, one commentator calls it the market of Asia Minor. But here's the thing about Ephesus. While Corinth was well known for its, its, its vast trade, Ephesus was well known for its political influence. It was a, a very important political city. It was, it, it, it was 
almost as important as Rome itself. But one of the things that's also very interesting about Ephesus is that it was one of the principal religious centers of the Greco-Roman world. In fact, if you've read through the book of Acts, you'll know that one of the gods that were worshipped there was the god of Diana. And it was a hotbed, a a place where the imperial cult flourished. What was the imperial cult? They worshipped Nero as God. And so it was a place of worship and particularly very important to the Romans. Above all, as we know, Ephesus was known as the guardian of the temple of Artemis. That's Diana. And this god was a wicked god. She was a, a, a virgin huntress. She, and there was this huge, this huge statue uh, built of her. In, in fact, it was even, even greater than the, than the statues in Athens. The structure had more than a hundred ionic pillars, each 60 feet high and supporting a white marble roof. But this was a place where people were absolutely besotted with the worship of Diana. And there were all kinds of wicked things that, that took place in Ephesus. As much as there were in Corinthians, Corinthians was an awful place, but Ephesus was just as well an awful place. All kinds of cultic prostitution that took place. It was really a cesspool, a den of iniquity. And so here then were three major cities of the Greco-Roman world, all of them in differing degrees. Athens, Corinthians, and Ephesus. And all of them in differing degrees being the centers of learning, trade, and religion. And so Paul goes to these places and Luke is setting before us the strategy of the Apostle Paul. Paul was going to the ends of the earth with the gospel. He was the, he was the man who was pushing the boundaries. And here in our first section, we are going to deal particularly with Corinth. Now, there's just a couple of things that I want to highlight before we go into Corinth because we're dealing with, we'll deal with, Lord willing, next Sunday, Ephesus. But in both cities, I want you to see this pattern. Paul began with a serious and sustained attempt to persuade the Jewish hearers in the synagogue that Jesus was the Christ. That seems to be his pattern. In both cities, secondly, Paul responded to Jewish rejection of the gospel, leaving the synagogue and turning to the Gentiles in evangelism and using as his base the house of Titius, Justice in Corinth and the lecture hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus. In both cities, Paul's bold step to turn away from the Jews and go to the Gentiles, which is what he was called to, was vindicated. Many people heard and believed the gospel. And in both cities, our Lord was right there with Paul and he confirmed his word and encouraged his apostle. In Corinth, he met with Paul by night in a vision. In Ephesus, he worked extraordinary miracles affirming Paul's ministry. In both cities, we see that, and this is significant, 
the Roman authorities dismissed the opposition. And inadvertently, I don't think they realized this, but inadvertently declared the legitimacy of the gospel. And we'll see that. Not in the sense that they, they personally affirmed it, but in the sense that they saw it as a legitimate religion, acceptable in the city. And we see that in Corinth with the proconsul Gallio and in Ephesus through the town clerk. So let's look at Corinth and let's walk through this step by step. We, we come to Corinth and we read in the first verse, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and then verse 2, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So let's think about that for a minute. Paul leaves Athens, and he meets up with this group of people, this couple, very important couple that will play an important role in Paul's ministry. But even before we think about Aquila and Priscilla, think about Paul's ministry to the Corinthian church. Do you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2? He says this, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. Now, I want you to think about that verse in the light of what we're seeing here. Because we need to understand something of the heart and the mind of the Apostle Paul. Why did he have such resolve to preach Christ and Him crucified. That was his habit, of course, that was his ministry. But he seems to be so tenacious about it in, in Corinth. Why was that? What was it about Corinth that caused Paul such alarm and made him or caused him to make that statement that he would preach only Christ and His cross? Well, let me submit this to you, beloved. It's something that I don't think comes out very clearly, unless you know something of the background. One thing that Corinth was well known for was its pride and its boasting. It was a proud, these were proudful people. They boasted and they prided themselves in their immorality. And this deeply disturbed Paul. And even when they were converted, they were still full of pride and arrogance. And when Paul preaches the cross, friends, he knows that it is the cross that will deal with that pride. You see, it is the cross that comes into collision with human pride. And so these people were very boastful people. And I, I appreciate how Luke draws that out. Their intellectual arrogance emerges clearly as Paul interacts with them and brings the gospel to them. These were a people who were proud of their city. They were proud of Julius Caesar. They had, they had, they had built the city in honor of the, of, of the emperor. They boasted of its wealth and its culture, of the world-famous Ethnian Games, which it hosted every other year 
and of its political prestige as the capital province of Achaia, taking precedence even over Athens. So they were a proudful people. And beloved, when you deal with the heart of man and his pride, there is only one remedy and it is the cross. Because it is the cross that insists that above all else we are sinners and we need a saviour. And there is nothing we can do, there is nothing we can accomplish that can purchase our salvation. That is why later on this afternoon I'll highlight how Paul says not many were wise, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. So let's deal now with Paul's time with Aquila and Priscilla. Who were Aquila and Priscilla? Well, they were a married couple. And Paul later calls them fellow workers in Christ Jesus. In fact, Paul tells us about Aquila and Priscilla that they had risked their lives for him. And they had a very unique ministry. They were, in fact, Luke highlights that they were able to move rapidly from city to city. So it seems like they were a, a couple that were able to, they were pretty mobile. They were born in Pontus on the southern shore of the Black Sea. Aquila had migrated to Italy. We're not told why, nor whether this move was before or after his marriage to Priscilla. But it was together that they left Rome for Corinth. And they left Rome on account of an imperial edict. Aquila and Priscilla almost definitely were believers before they reached Corinth. They had heard the gospel somewhere along the line and they had been converted. Now there, there is some speculation, and I won't go into a lot of that, but there is some speculation that Claudius drove certain Jews out of the province because they were causing trouble. And there is some evidence that the trouble that they were causing is that they may have been preaching Christ. And to tamp down on the, the Jews rising up, he exiled or sent a bunch of Jews out of the, this particular place. But whatever reason they were driven out of Rome, they later undertook a further move, this time from Corinth to Ephesus, to Ephesus and they did so in the company of Paul and the church, or at least portion of the church met in their house. Now, Luke tells us, Paul came to them because he was of the same trade. He stayed with them and he worked with them because his occupation was a tent maker. In other words, they, they did the same thing. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of what a tent maker is because there's some debate about whether it's just a leather worker or an actual tent maker. So I won't go into detail about that. But what is clear is this, is that Paul worked with his hands. And it's very interesting because that was something which rabbis required to, to, were required to learn a trade. And they actually taught all young men to do the same. So, Paul wasn't going to be a burden on anyone. He was able to provide his own supply. Now, again, folks, let me just pause here for a moment because a lot of people 
have taken this and used this as a model for all kinds of valid ministry, that you have to be a tent maker. That is not necessarily the case. That's what Paul chose and he made it clear. On several occasions, Paul speaks on the right of Christian teachers to be supported by the work that they're involved in. But as far as Paul was concerned, he voluntarily renounced this right. Why? Well, this man didn't want to be a burden to the churches. And partly as well to undercut the accusation that he was doing what he was doing out of ulterior motives by preaching the gospel free of charge. So you see there were these people who hounded Paul and continually criticized his ministry. And he would have nothing of the churches because he didn't want to burden them. And he didn't want to give any rise to any false understanding. Now let me say, if I could just pause for a moment. There is certainly a place for tent making ministries. I absolutely think the scripture tells us that. But again, let me warn you. It's not to be placed on a platform above those who are rightly supplied in their labors, who labor in the gospel. And really the expression tent maker is a, it's a word that speaks of a gospel messenger who goes into a place and he wants to be free of anyone having any false assumption of or any false motives of why he's there. So that the gospel may not be hindered. In fact, one man writes this. He says, talks about today's tent makers. The principle of self-support is the same. And the desire not to burden the churches. But the main motivation is different. Namely, that this may be the only way for Christians to enter those countries which do not grant visas to self-styled missionaries. So there's absolutely a wonderful place for tent making ministry. If you go to China, you can't get a, a visa to be a missionary. They won't allow it. But you can go and teach English. And in that way, you can go and bring the gospel. And so, what we see here is Paul's wisdom. And the way in which God provides a way for him to, to, to preach and bring the gospel to a people without any cause for criticism. Well, we are told in the text... That while Paul worked all week, and we know that even after he worked, sometimes he would teach right up until late at night. But every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade. Now, I appreciate the language here because it's an imperfect tense. And he tries to persuade Jews and Greeks. In other words, the idea here is that, that he was continually talking to them. He was continually reasoning with them. He was reasoning with the Jews and the God-fearers who attended the synagogue worship. Then we find in the text, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, after staying in Berea and visiting Thessalonica, they brought him not only the good news of the Thessalonians' faith, but they more than likely brought him a gift because he stops tent making and then he focuses his attention completely on preaching and testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. What was his mission, folks? 
His mission was to bring the identity of the historical Jesus. That this was the expected Christ, the true Messiah, which really mattered. How, did, how was he received? Look at verse 6. They opposed him and they blasphemed. They opposed him and they blasphemed. They were resistant and hostile to him. Here's the wonderful thing about Paul. He didn't stop. And Paul, to repeat the, dramatic, the drastic step he had taken in Pisidian Antioch, and what did he do? They wouldn't, they wouldn't listen to him. They oppose him, and he shakes his garments, and he turns away from him. Now let's pause for a moment and think about that. This is what he said. Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, I want you to, I want you to think about this, folks. There is a reason why Paul shook the dust from his feet. This was, this was something that the Old Testament prophets would do. He would shake his feet that not a speck of dust from the synagogue might adhere to them. And he said, your blood be on your own Heads, I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He's doing exactly what God had told Ezekiel to do when he stood on the, on the watchtower. Son of man, if you see the sword coming and you don't warn them, their blood will be on your hands. But if you warn them and they reject you, the blood will be on their hands. That's what Paul is doing. He's saying you are bringing judgment on yourself. And so Paul turns to the Gentiles. We read here in verse 7, And he that is Paul departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Now again, we can rush over that and just think that's just a geographical note. It's not. What it does do for us and what Luke is showing us is that there is a change. There is a, there is a change, a shifting of his, of his labors from public synagogue ministry to private house. And so what Paul did was he went and he evangelized from house to house. He changed from the Jews to the Gentiles. And the text tells us, that he entered a house that belonged to a man by the name of Titius Justice, a God-fearer. And that's what he began to do. But let me pause for a moment and also say this to you. You know what's surprising here? Who's the first convert that's mentioned? Look at verse 8. Crispus, the synagogue ruler who was in charge of the services, and that his entire household believed in the Lord. So he turns to the Gentiles and the first convert is a Jew. Isn't that fascinating? In fact, later on we read in, uh, in verse, it carries on in verse 8, but following him were many of the Corinthians, presumably Gentiles, hearing Paul, 
believed and were baptized. So the Jew being converted was the, the first kind of opening of the sluice gates and then the Corinthians were being saved. Now, folks, let's pause for a minute and think about the wonder of what God is telling us through this text. God is showing us His approval of Paul's bold decision to move from synagogues to the home, from the Jewish to the Gentile. God is affirming Paul's ministry. And God is vindicating that what, God, that what Paul is doing is of him. And we see it by the conversion and the baptism of many. But not only that, not only was there fruit, but the Lord met with Paul. We see it in verse 9 and 10. And then we see that even the attitude of the Roman authorities were somewhat favorable towards Paul. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. And of course we know as Paul is, as Luke is recording this, Luke is consistently using this language to speak about Christ. And Christ meets with Paul, speaks to him. What does he say? Don't be afraid. And then he gives him the promise, I am with you. Beloved, this is exactly what God would do to his prophets. This is exactly how God would meet with his prophets. And our Lord said to the Apostle Paul, Do not be afraid, but speak, verse 9, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. I don't know about you, but that surely should give any servant of God steel in their veins. And Paul continues to preach. And truly God is true to his word. He comes under the, he's under the protection of Christ. And many people, many people are brought in. And it's interesting that Luke uses a particular word that actually refers, it's an Old Testament word for how, how the gospel or how, the, how, how God and his message was extended from Israel to the Gentiles. In fact, the expression is suggestive of the Good Shepherd statement. Remember in John 10, I have other sheep. They are not of this sheepfold. They must come in. Don't worry, Paul, says Jesus. I have other sheep and they will come in. I want you to not rush over this and realize how does how does Jesus encourage Paul? Election, God. Election. They had not yet believed. Don't worry, Paul. I have other sheep. They will come in. Because that is the purpose that God had set. And that is the purpose that Paul was accomplishing. And again, I want to say, beloved, this is the greatest conviction of all that the conversion of the hearts and the souls of men is ultimately in the hands of God. It's not in the gimmicks. It's not in the different kinds of techniques. It is the faithful preaching and exposition of the gospel and God will bring them in. 
And Paul was strengthened by it. How do we know Paul was strengthened by it? Because Paul stayed for a year and a half in Corinth, teaching them the Word of God. That's what verse 11 says. Again, beloved, think about that for a minute. He didn't resort to gimmicks. He didn't resort to drama. He just preached the Word of God. Everywhere he went, he preached the Word of God. That is the divinely appointed means by which people come to put their trust in Christ and so identify themselves as His. Just an interesting account of the Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, who was probably one of the greatest preachers, lived in the 20th century. And Westminster Chapel was packed with people, and it wasn't old people, it was young people. And one, one reporter went around asking, why were all these young people coming to sit under the ministry of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones? And you know what the answer was? He simply explains the scriptures. <coughs> he simply explains the scriptures. It is God's appointed means but the preaching of the word. Another thing that we notice here, and this is, this is really the last part of this text. I want you to notice very carefully how Paul is vindicated by Roman law. Now, I, again, this, this is the sovereign hand of God. At some point during these 18 months, Jewish opposition to the gospel had been brewing. And it was the very thing that had led Paul to turn to the Gentiles. And here again it erupts. Look at verse 12. The Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat. And the, the word judgment seat here is, you might have heard of it, it's the, the Bema seat. Which is a large raised platform that stood in the Agora in front of the residence of the proconsul and served as a forum where he tried cases. It was in keeping with Christ's promise, promise that no one would harm Paul, verse 10, that the Jews took him to court while Gallio was pro-counsel of Achaia. Think about that. They could have just pulled him out and stoned him. They'd done it before. But Gallio was the man he was a pro-counsel. And Gallio proved to be, at least he wasn't a Christian, but at least he had, he had a high view of justice and truth. I'm not going to go into the details of Gallio, but here Gallio is, and they bring him, they bring Paul to this man. Now what did they accuse Paul of doing? Look at verse 13. This man they charged is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. But here's the question. Which law was Paul supposed to have been violating or contravening? And as Gallio heard this raucous going on, he understood correctly. Listen, the law you're talking about is your own law. It's got nothing to do with me. I'm not part of this thing between that there's a debate about the Jewish law. I, it's beyond my jurisdiction. 
And friends, it's noteworthy that he came to that conclusion because what they were trying to do was that they were trying to get Gallio to see that he wasn't just teaching against Jewish law, but in fact he was violating Roman law. And he was violating Roman law because, well, what he was teaching was not an authentic expression of Judaism. In fact, Judaism was an allowed religion in Rome. So it was one of those religions that was allowed. But this man was coming and he was, he was teaching something which is illegitimate. It was a perversion. It was, was not accepted by Jews. Well, Gallio didn't see it that way. As far as he was concerned, Roman law had nothing to do with Jewish law. And all he does is, look at verse 14. And just when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, listen to this, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, that is, an obvious offense against Roman law, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions, and the one translation says bickerings, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. Gallio was saying, I, I don't want anything to do with it. It's not in my purview. It's something that is to your law and to your traditions. And then he had them ejected from the port. And unfortunately, there was a, a, something of a mob rule riot that broke out. Now, let me just say this, friends. Gallio's refusal to take seriously the Jewish case against Paul or to adjudicate this matter was a very important decision for the future of the gospel. In effect, what he did was he passed a favorable verdict on the Christian faith, inadvertently, to be sure. But he established a significant precedent. What was that precedent? The gospel could now, not now, be charged with illegality for its freedom as a legitimate religion had been secured by imperial policy. So God had moved this man to make a decision that ultimately, at least for some time, there would be some freedom of the gospel to go forward. Now, beloved, let's pause for a minute. Let's think about this. God holds the king in his hand. And even though it may be a wicked king and it may be a wicked system, beloved, we can pray. And we should pray. Paul tells us in Timothy that we would be able to live peaceable lives. That is why it is so important for us to pray for our governors and our rulers. And even, even our, our wicked administration. Because God has the hand, the heart of a king in his hand. And look at the conclusion of this. Luke makes this comment. Verse 18, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. 
Not now because of his vision of Jesus, that was certainly true of it, but because of the judicial decision of Gallio. You see, what Christ had said to Paul had come to fruition. I will protect you. I will make it that the gospel can run smoothly and be proclaimed faithfully. Our Lord Jesus kept his promises to protect him. And the chief means of his protection would be Roman law and the law of the land. And beloved, that is why I also think it is foolhardy for Christians to sign off when it comes to the laws of the land and to involvement in the political affairs. I don't think we should make a God out of it for sure. But we, wherever we see those shafts of light, Francis Schaeffer has written a really great little book, and I recommend it to you. It's called The Christian Manifesto. Wherever we see those shafts of light, wherever we see that common grace, wherever we have that, that opportunity for the sake of the gospel to seize upon those opportunities and to proclaim Christ and to be engaged in the situation. Paul was a Roman citizen and he's used his Roman citizenship to advance the gospel. Let me bring this to a conclusion. Thank you for your patience. But I want you, in conclusion, to consider this. God vindicated Paul's decision to turn to the Gentiles. Paul shook his feet, the dust of his feet, and he went to the Gentiles. And as he went to the Gentiles and he proclaimed, many believed because Christ had said, Many will believe. And beloved, here's the promise. When we take the gospel to, God, to the people, people will believe, not because of our persuasive tactics, but because of God's promise and God's faithfulness. And if that's the case, beloved, let us use the means and the mechanism God has given us. Let us take the word of God to them. Let us bring the gospel to them. Let's not try and, and, and wow them with entertainment and wow them with this, this activity or that activity. Bring the word of God to them. But I want you to also notice how God protected Paul. He used this earthly, carnal, worldly man, Gallium, in spite of the troublemaking of the Jews, Gallio recused himself from the matters of Jewish law and in doing so, doing so inadvertently, he made a way in which the gospel was able to flow freely. Pray for rulers. Pray for those in authority that we may live peaceable lives. And then, something I didn't bring up in the text, but I want to make it by way of conclusion. God sent Silas and Timothy to encourage Paul. It comes out in the text. Paul needed the encouragement and he needed the help of co-laborers in the field. God doesn't expect us to labor alone for us. He does send us help and support. He doesn't expect us to face the battle by ourselves. He raises up people and puts them there. And I think that's important. But it's also equally as important to say, Paul was not dependent upon him. Paul remained faithful no matter what, whether he was alone or whether he had support. Paul remained faithful. And also I want to say God supplied Paul's needs in many ways. 
He was able to work with Aquila and Priscilla and provide for himself. And then Timothy and Silas must have brought a gift to Paul because he was able to leave his tent making. In other words, God is the one who supplies and God is the one who will sustain us and God is the one who will be faithful in keeping us. And the final thing I want to say from this text is I want you to see here. Paul was in close fellowship with Christ. He took his marching orders from God. God spoke to him. God said to him, do not be afraid. Verse 9, speak and do not keep silent. Verse 10, for I am with you. No one will attack and hurt you. I have many people in the city. Well, that's good and well, Pastor. But he was an apostle and God spoke to him directly. How does that help me? Well, I understand we can't take a text like this and simply transfer it to ourselves as if God is saying the identical thing to us. God is not saying specifically to us, nobody will ever attack you, nobody will ever harm you. And I have many people in this city. God hasn't said that to anyone here. However, I cannot help but think that if God has placed us in a particular place, it is because He has worked for us to do that. So God has, if God has placed you in a hostile environment, He's placed you there for a reason. And He who called you will be faithful to sustain. Maybe He has ordained that you go through persecution and you suffer a great deal. Like Daniel's four friends. O King, whether we burn or perish in the fire, we will still praise our God, but our God is able to deliver us. The point is this, friends. Our job is to keep on keeping on. Why? Not because we're stubborn, but because God is with us. And there is one promise God has given to us that all of us can take and cling to. And it is this. Jesus said to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And listen, this is a promise to everyone who is faithful to the gospel message. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Beloved, God is faithful. Trust Him. Amen. Father, we thank You for this wonderful passage of Scripture. We thank You for the way in which You provided for our brother Paul. We thank You for the way in which You even used the civil and secular authorities to accomplish your will. And Lord, if there's one thing that we can take away from all of this, it is that, Lord, when you move, no one can stay your hand or say to you, what have you done? You are God and you are in control. What a blessing to learn from this passage as well. But sometimes when we see the masses out there and we think, who will believe? We need only be reminded, this is your job. You've had many people in the city. We need only be faithful and to preach the word. And to trust you for the outcome. Our Lord, we thank you.
We thank you for these wonderful verses. Teach us and instruct our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.